Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. From DeFacto Sound, you're listening to 20,000 Hertz, the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. I'm Dallas Taylor. This is the story of accents. Mama, may I present Matthew Crawley and Mrs. Crawley, my mother, Lady Grantham. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Please, forget I knew this ever happened. You, no, no, you, you're very good, you. No, you are very good. Nobody brings a fella the size of you unless they're trying to say something they're talking right by. I like the way you talk. I like the way you talk. I love accents. Every time I hear someone who sounds different from the way I speak, I take notice and wonder where they were born, who influenced their upbringing, and sometimes whether or not I could speak like that. Quick note, any accents you hear in this episode are not necessarily the best. I know that people are fiercely proud of their accents and have strong opinions about what constitutes an accurate depiction. So for better, my name is Nelson Mandela. Or worse, get in my belly. We're just going to have fun with this. For all English speaking people, our language started somewhere. Okay, that's terrible, but it's the best I can do. While the evolution of our language took many centuries, early modern English, the version used by Shakespeare, dates from around 1500. And modern English, pretty close to how we speak now, came along about a hundred years later, right about the time the British began colonizing North America. So I'm curious, did the American colonists from England originally have a British accent? But first, I wanted to speak with someone who's an expert on accents. I'm Eric Singer, and I'm a dialect coach. An accent is just the sounds of a particular variety of speech. You know, the sound system, the pattern, the pronunciation. Dialect basically includes things like syntax and and word order, different ways of saying things, different ways of referring to something. Whether you call it pop or soda or Coke, you know, that's a dialect feature. Simply put, dialect is more what you say. Accent is how you say it. Eric has worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. He helps them fine-tune the speaking portion of their performances when they take on the role of either a real-life or fictional character with an accent. He's studied and trained for years to be able to both do accents and also teach them. I asked him what some of his favorite accents are to perform. Depends on the day. Uh, depends on how I feel, because there's a, you know, a big part of that. Let's see, to sort of uh, pick a few that I definitely have an affinity for. My mother is Swedish. One of the things I love about Sweden is uh, the food and the culture. It's uh, something I have a great uh, affinity for. So I make, uh, I make my own herring and aquavit. Got great affinity for Southeast London. I like doing hossa, even if you can't get the clicks in there when you're just speaking English. Hossa is an indigenous uh, language to South Africa. Uh, Nelson Mandela was a hossa speaker. And it's, uh, South Africa has 11 official languages, and Hossa is one of the biggest. 
Uh, you know, if you think of a very stereotypical French accent, the lip corners tend to be sort of pulling in towards the teeth and advancing a little bit. If you think of a sort of very stereotypical 1950s kind of RAF kernel sort of thing, it's the opposite. Uh, the jaw is very high and the lip corners tend to spread a bit. Eric is pretty talented, but everyone has their kryptonite, right? I wonder which accents are harder for him to perform. Welsh accents tend to be uh, tricky for American actors. We generally haven't heard a lot of Welsh. I find uh, I've just never had the opportunity to work on Geordie accent, which is Newcastle. What's wrong with Bowie? What's wrong with Bowie? It's perfectly normal. For girls, not, not, not for lads, Billy. Lads do football or wrestling. The other thing that can make an accent difficult to acquire is just kind of psychological and identity stuff. It's an act of the imagination, taking on an accent. So there are these, you know, very, very technical aspects to what an accent is, how those sounds are formed. But you can't do it if you can't imagine yourself as somebody who speaks that way. It's your mind, it's your imagination, it's your heart. And so if it's hard to imagine yourself as someone who speaks with a given accent, it's going to be a lot harder to get there. Okay, so back to my initial question. What did British colonists sound like when settling in North America in the 1600s up to, say, 1776? There wasn't only one English accent. There were many. There were three other big waves of migration. I mean, this is a little bit simplified, but, um, you know, we all think of the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock. And so whatever that accent was then was surely what sort of predominated in those, those kind of Massachusetts colonies. Virginia, sort of Tidewater, Virginia, was settled to a large extent by sons of well-off families and their servants. Then there was the Quakers who came over into kind of Delaware, Maryland area and sort of spread west into southern Pennsylvania. So, you know, there were lots and lots of accents. I realized it might be hard to pin Eric down on an answer here. But in the most general terms, I asked him what would most of those accents sound like in the colonies at that time? It would have sounded quite strange to our ears, but I would say definitely American, just because this pronunciation or non-pronunciation of R sounds after vowels is such a major feature. It's a huge divide. From Philadelphia, we expect a declaration of independence. Eight of the 13 colonies have levied money in support of a continental army. The different vowel sounds between things like hat and half, where for us, hat and half, it's the same. He has 18 of our officers. Who is he? I recognize him. He's the commander of the militia. He rode in under a white flag for formal parley. Those two huge things, I think, would probably give us the impression that all English speakers in England and in the States, or the colonies, sounded more like Americans do now than like Brits do now. If many of these colonists more or less sounded American, then how did accents back in Britain change to what we now know them as today? We have a sort of preconceived notion of what British dialect should sound like. And it's typically without its R's, you know, so it's not rhotic. That's Walt Wolfram. He's a sociolinguist at North Carolina State University, specializing in social and ethnic dialects of American English. In a 50-year career, he's written 20 books and over 300 articles on variation in American English. The accents of American English pretty much reflected areas of England. So, for example, you get people who settled on the coasts 
of uh, Virginia in islands, for example, and in North Carolina on the islands there. And they were very rhotic. That is, they pronounced their R's in four and in war and so forth. So they were very rhotic because they came from Southwest England where people still pronounce their R's. On the other hand, there were some areas of England which were becoming quite R-less because that was becoming the standard in London in the 1600s and 1700s. And so they were more R-less. This new accent that today is called received pronunciation, or RP for short, may have begun in the 1600s, but it would take a while before it became so synonymous with Brits. You're being ridiculous. No Englishman would dream of dying in someone else's house. But basically, it's simply the standard of London, of Southern England, because of the prestige and because of the social class, that became the acceptable sort of norm. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Basically, prestige in accents is in the ear of the beholder. So speaking of prestige, with all of this R-full and R-less business, did Shakespeare's plays around 1600 sound the way we imagine them today? If you look at Shakespeare's background, to the extent that we know about him, he actually used R's. And so he wouldn't sound like we imagine a British person to sound like at that time. You go back to Shakespeare, and the R's were really hard. So this idea that some Americans have, I think, that Shakespeare should always be pronounced in an RP accent is fine, if that's your taste. They that have power to hurt and will do none that do not do the thing they most do show, who, moving others, are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. But it sounds absolutely nothing like what Shakespeare's actors would have sounded like. They that have power to art, and will do none, who do not do the thing that most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone, unmothered, cold, and to temptation slow. Something like that. It was very R-full, really hard R's, kind of, you know, almost a little bit piratical. And it was, it was very fluid and efficient. They left out a lot of sounds. As accents in England began to change over the next few centuries, so did American accents. But early in the 20th century, an interesting phenomenon occurred. As they came crashing back together in a brand new accent that didn't evolve, it was created. We'll get to that in just a minute. When I think about hiring, it just seems like it's more work, more stress, and more pressure. But here's how Indeed takes away all that worry. Indeed is the world's number one matching and hiring platform with over 350 million visitors every month. Indeed cuts out the work of hiring with smart AI technology that helps you find the right candidate quickly. It takes the stress out of the process with scheduling, screening, and messaging all in one place. So you know exactly what you're up to in the hiring process because Indeed keeps track of everything for you. Then, Indeed relieves the pressure of choosing the right person. That's because their skill tests give you the confidence that you've got the right candidate. So now when you think of hiring, don't think of all those negatives. Just think of Indeed. To try Indeed for yourself with a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility, visit Indeed.com Hertz. Just go to Indeed.com Hertz right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Hertz. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes. But you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com slash 20k. netsuite.com slash 20k. From colonial times to the early 1900s, accents continued to slowly evolve in America. But around the 1920s and 30s, a new accent popped up, almost out of nowhere. Well, it's got lots of names, popularly known certainly as transatlantic, sometimes mid-Atlantic, which is weird. But either way, sort of like you were born on an island in the middle of the ocean between England and the U.S. It used to be called Good American Speech, and before that it was called World English. It is, for the most part, kind of a hybrid accent. For FDR, it was his natural dialect. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So in a sense, while it had some characteristics that people think of as transatlantic, they were natural to him, which is quite different from an actor, for example, who, like Audrey Hepburn, who might want to appear to be transatlantic and therefore be Arles and pronounce her T's as in beta. I know that's what everybody always thinks, but everybody happens to be wrong. They choose Arlessness, then they choose a few vowels like bad as bad. And so they choose a half a dozen features, which is to a Britisher sounds, oh my gosh, that's a bad British accent. (laughs) And to an American, they may not know the difference. And so it all sounds sophisticated to them. Phoebe, these are my parents, Theodore and Bitsy. Theodore, Bitsy. (laughs) What a delight. (laughs) What are you doing? I want them to get to know Phoebe, not Phoebe. It's hard to stop. Mm. (laughs) It conferred prestige. And this is an idea that I think is not with the times now, because this kind of idea of picking a certain group of people or way of speaking and saying everybody else speaks wrong or badly, we're then telling people who speak non-standard dialects or lower prestige dialects, you're bad and wrong or sloppy, and that's just absurd on its face. I assumed that the transatlantic accent was just a fad and died out completely. But then, there was a little show on NBC called Frasier. Oh, for goodness sake, Frasier, I'm a happily married man. Maris means the world to me. Just the other day, I kissed her for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) Yes, Niles Crane. So David Hyde Pierce trained at Yale, and Yale Drama School, like pretty much every American drama school of the time when he was training, that was sort of the Bible. So this good American speech pattern was 
universally taught in actor training programs long after nobody spoke it naturally anymore, it still is taught in a lot of places. It's still useful for period stuff, certainly. If you're gonna set a, a movie in the 1950s and the characters are actors, well, go for your good American speech, absolutely. Movies are movies, Howard, not life. Now the stage. The stage is real. Real flesh and blood human beings right out there in front of you, buster. Speaking of good American speech, there's a perception in America that some accents are less becoming or desirable to have than others. So a sort of general American accent has taken hold. There's this mythical beast called general American. Put the general in quotes. It's not one accent. It's more sort of the absence of certain things, which is it's the absence of particularly regionally identifiable features. So, you know, if I say Tom or coffee or hot, you know, those are things that are going to stand out to anybody and kind of make them say, oh, you know, I know where you're from. So if you don't have any of those, then people might say you sound kind of general American. Of course, there's lots of variation still in there. You know, half of Americans rhyme the words C-O-T and the words C-A-U-G-H-T, right? So cot and cot, I caught a nap on the cot. Canadians pretty much all do that. This lack of accent, as you might describe it, can be a bit boring. I asked Eric if he could give me one of my favorites, an accent from Fargo. Oh, Minnesota, so that's very different. Um, And I know a lot of people from there are are quite sensitive about kind of a stereotypical or exaggerated version of that. Um, And it's not to say that everyone from Minnesota might talk like that, but there are people who do for sure. Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. There are a whole range of regional American accents that have been around for hundreds of years. From New York, to Boston, to Chicago, to Cajun, to a wide variety of southern accents. But what about newer ones like Valley Girl or the Kardashian-esque vocal fry? I think it's a little hard to define. I think people mean different things by Valley Girl, although there are probably some, you know, some common features like uptalk. Maybe you should get going before Stuart gets home. Right, right. I was thinking I'd take Canyon View Driver to San Vicente and then make a left and go on the 405 North. From there, just get off of Mulholland. Totally like that. And definitely like vocal fry is a part of that. That's when your vocal folds start kind of vibrating a little slower than they would for like all your voice. It is a talent to have a brand that's really successful off of getting people to like you for you. So I would think that has to involve some kind of talent. Both of those features actually are really widespread in American speech. You know, Australian accents and Northern Irish accents and Scottish accents very often have a rise at the end of a phrase or a sentence. Where are we going? Go home, boy. I want to go. So what you have today are you have new dialect areas in Northern California, in the Northwest. So, for example, in Seattle and Portland, areas like this are creating dialects that are regionally distinctive. And the point is this, everybody wants to be from somewhere, and our dialect indicates where we're from. Isolation is one reason some accents have lasted for as long as they have. One popular theory is that Appalachian English is a preserved remnant of 16th century Elizabethan English. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Well, it's... True and not true, okay? The true aspect of it is that there are certainly older retentions of the English language. For example, in Appalachian English, the prefix like he's a hunting and a fishing, that certainly is an older English 
phenomenon that has been preserved, as are pronunciations like uh, twice and once for uh, once and twice. And they're certainly older pronunciations. The problem is that at the same time, Appalachian English is changing and becoming a dialect unto itself. And so there are lots of things that are actually new in Appalachian English. It's sort of like something old, something new, something borrowed, you know, something blue. A few years ago, a crew from BBC came to visit the island of Ocracoke. Ocracoke is an island off the coast of North Carolina. Someone had said, well, that's where the really Elizabethan Shakespearean English is found. And it's true that they do have some older features that were around at the time of Shakespeare. They say thar for there, and, and they also say for for high tide, they say hoi toid, you know, which is a little more British and older. So they have some traits that certainly are remnants of former days. Many people throughout their lives supposedly lose their accents or have them transform into a different one. When a Southerner moves north, they often start to lose that classic Southern drawl. Could some accents be dying out? There are some sounds in languages generally that are, that are a little unstable, that are a little more likely to be changed or dropped into something else as language change goes on. And we have two of them. It's the two different TH sounds, like in this and thin. One is voiced, one is unvoiced, right? And every time we see those in languages, they, they eventually morph or change or get dropped over time. You can definitely hear that in what's called multicultural London English, which I love, kind of a V or an F sound instead. A good example of this is the way some Londoners say mother and brother as mava and brava. I think I've come across predictions that by 2150, English won't have those sounds at all. So that's always ongoing. New accents are always coming and going and merging and splitting and distinguishing themselves from each other. Every time I hear someone who sounds different from the way I speak, it reminds me that the world is vast and diverse. It's a collection of people with different ideas, different cultures, and different identities. These identities began thousands of years ago, and they're still with us. Because we evolved in these, these social, communal, small groups. And so you have to be able to recognize and distinguish your people from the other people. We've grown very, very attuned to these minute differences. Even if we can't say technically what they are, we're like, oh, you're not one of me or you're my kind of guy. Just coming back to the idea that accent is identity, it's a way of encoding and signaling, almost completely at an unconscious level for most people, who they feel like they are, who they want to be seen as, what group they feel like they belong to. It's the richness and the variety that is so fascinating and so deeply human. Dialects are identity and they index where we come from, who we are, where we're going. And so in a sense, to be without a dialect is to lose something of your personal character, your regional identity, and your sense of who you are and the communities that you come from. They're about as critical as any other aspect of diversity. 
this would be a much less interesting place if everybody spoke the same way. Thousand Hertz is presented by DeFacto Sound, a sound design team working with production companies, advertising agencies, filmmakers, and game developers to make their projects sound incredible. Find out more and get in touch at defactosound.com. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Eds and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was mixed by Jai Berger. Many thanks to dialect coach Eric Singer for joining us. You can learn more about Eric's accent coaching at ericsinger.com. That's Eric with a K. If you search for him on YouTube, you can find an incredible breakdown he did of 32 actors' accents. Also, thanks to linguistics professor Dr. Walt Wolfram. You can check out his latest work in the new documentary, Talking Black in America, the story of African-American language. And thanks to youtube.com slash Socratic, that's S-O-C-R-A-T-I-C, for use of their Shakespeare sonnet number 94. The music in this episode is from Musicbed. They represent more than 650 great artists, ranging from indie rock and hip-hop to classical and electronic. Head over to music.20k.org to hear our exclusive playlist. I'd love to hear your accent. Open up your Voice Memos app on your phone and record your thoughts about the show, your show ideas, or anything else you'd like to share. We might just post your thoughts to our social accounts, which you can find on Facebook and Twitter at 20k.org. You can send your voice memo to hi at 20k.org. If you're a little shy about recording your voice, don't be. But if you'd rather pass and still have something you'd like to tell us, reach out through our website at 20k.org. One thing that would be really helpful is to let your friends in the press know about the show. It's our mission to elevate the amazing sense of hearing through these little stories. And I'd love for more people to hear them. You can get in touch with me directly through our website or at hi at 20k.org. Thanks for listening. 